right, well, if you will, take out your Bibles with me this morning. Let's open them up to the book of Genesis once again, to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. <clears throat> so we continue working our way verse by verse through these final chapters of the book of Genesis. We come to one that is difficult. We're going to read this morning just verses 1 through 11. Genesis 38, verses 1 through 11. And this is the Word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. It is chapters like Genesis 38 that test a preacher's commitment to expository preaching. Uh, I've stated many times before that I believe in a steady diet of verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible. I believe that is best for the people of God. I believe it's best because we are so prone to skip parts of the Bible that we do not like. We are so prone to skip parts of the Bible that seem uninteresting to us. And yet God gave us the whole Bible for a reason. Every part of the Bible, every sentence, every word is inspired of God, as we've been learning about the last two Wednesday nights. Every word is profitable for us. In fact, we have often found in the past that passages that seem difficult or unattractive at first, when we dig into them and study them, we find that there is great treasure in these passages. And so we hope that the truth, that, that will be true of Genesis 38 as well, and I have good reason to tell you that it, it is true. Um, Genesis 38 is about as unattractive as any part of the Bible. It speaks very bluntly of various kinds of sexual immorality. It's the kind of passage that 
Uh, when a father gets to it in family worship, he, he prays the children won't have too many questions. There's also not a good guy in this chapter. Uh, every person involved in this chapter is called up in some sin or another. But in spite of this, I think we'll find this passage is worth our attention. That this chapter really does have something very good, very glorious to teach us. And I think this is a good moment for me to remind us that this is yet another reason why we should accept the Bible as what it claims to be. The very Word of God. Judah, who we read about in this chapter, is a forefather of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is, of, is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. If this book of Genesis is just a collection of fictional stories or revised history, we would not expect it to be so open about the embarrassing sins of some of the most important people in Israel's history. The fact that these pages in the book of Genesis show us some of the most important men in the history of the world, warts and all, is evidence that we have a reliable record. The book of Genesis is not about how super holy these people were. It's about God's grace and how great it is to take the messed up men and women that we see in these pages and to use them in incredible ways for His glory and the salvation of His people. And so we ought to be thankful that the Bible gives us an accurate picture of these men and women's lives, even when that picture is distasteful. We ought to come away from Genesis 38 saying, if God can change a man like Judah, there is no limit to what God can do in people like you and like me. I've entitled this message this morning as well as tonight, Of Human Bondage. Uh, Of Human Bondage is the title of a famous novel written by Somerset Maugham. Uh, I read that book when I was back in high school. I do not recommend it. Uh, but The book takes us through the main character's restless search for uh, contentment, his restless search for satisfaction in life. Uh, the main character of that book, his name is Philip Carey, and he's a troubled young man. He travels from location to location. He pursues one career after another career. He becomes involved with one woman and then the next woman. And he's trying to find contentment. He's trying to find peace. And in the end, he comes to this conclusion. He says towards the end of the book, the simplest pattern, that in which a man was born, worked, married, had children, and died, was likewise the most perfect. Well, I thought this title of human bondage was appropriate for our study because we've just seen Joseph taken away in chains. When we leave Genesis 37, Joseph is in physical bondage. He is now a slave in Egypt. And from a worldly perspective, we would look at Judah and say Judah is the free man while Joseph is in bondage. But in every way that really matters, it is Joseph who is free, and it is Judah who is in bondage. Joseph is in physical chains. 
But as we will see, Joseph is still trusting in his God. We're going to see Joseph being faithful to God, even in his new difficult circumstances. We're going to find Joseph not one who complains and gripes, but rather one who has gratitude in his heart. Joseph is a slave on the outside, but on the inside he is free from the bondage of sin. He is is loving God and he is striving to live for God's glory. Meanwhile, Judah on the outside is a free man. But Judah is in bondage to his own sinful will. Judah does not think rightly about things. He he does not care about the things of God. He is continuing to go blindly down a path that apart from God's grace will bring greater and greater hardship to him and to his family. And so really it is Judah more than Joseph who is in slavery. That brings us to what I want to suggest is the central doctrine of Genesis 38. The central doctrine of Genesis 38. And here it is. God sometimes transforms the unlikeliest of men in the unlikeliest of ways. Or to put it another way, God sometimes saves the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of ways. I told you, sometimes the most unattractive chapters have the most glorious truths. This is a glorious truth. And this morning and tonight, as we focus on 38, we're going to see God's grace is even greater than the worst of men and the worst of their sins. There may be those whom we think God could never change so-and-so. Oh, you know that person. God could never change them. Judah stands as exhibit A that God sometimes saves those people who seem to be the most unlikely from our earthly perspective. And so I hope this will be an encouragement to us today that God's grace is vast. There is no one beyond God's power to save. So, here's our outline for today. In the morning... This morning, we're going to see the wickedness of Judah. How unlikely it was that this man would be converted. We're going to see the wickedness of Judah. And then tonight, we're going to see the humbling of Judah. The humbling of Judah. So, this morning, the wickedness of Judah. And as we do this, we're going to have three headings. Three headings. First, Judah's wickedness before Tamar. So, before Tamar comes in the picture, Judah's wickedness before Tamar. Number two, Judah's wickedness seen in his sons. Seen in his sons. And then number three, Judah's wickedness concerning Tamar. And some of that we'll have to wait till tonight to see. Let me give you those one more time, all you note takers out there. Judah's wickedness before Tamar. The wickedness of Judah as seen in his sons. And then the wickedness of Judah concerning Tamar. And along the way we're going to see some important implications for us. All right, let's jump in. The wickedness of Judah before Tamar. Genesis 38 is mainly about what happened in this relationship between Judah, the father-in-law, and Tamar, his daughter-in-law. However, the wickedness of Judah is put on display before we even get to Tamar. Let's remember what we already know about Judah before we even get to Genesis 38. First, we know that from Genesis 34, Judah 
and the other sons of Jacob were very upset when their sister Dinah was seized and raped by the prince of Shechem. And it was right for them to be upset. It was a terrible travesty that had occurred in the life of their sister. That young man tried to make up for it because he genuinely loved Dinah and wanted to care for her. It may have been true that Dinah actually loved this young man. But Judah and his brothers responded in a wicked way with hatred and with vengeance in their heart. And rather than leaving vengeance to the Lord, Judah and his brothers deceived the men of the city of Shechem. Ultimately, two of Judah's older brothers massacred the men of that city, kidnapped the women and the children, plundered the city. And we're not told that Judah participated in that massacre. But we are told that Judah, along with the other brothers, participated both in the hatred towards those people and in the deception that led up to the massacre. So before we even get to Genesis 35, we already have a man whose character is not one we would want to emulate, a man of great wickedness. Then we get to Genesis 37, and we see Judah in relationship to his brother Joseph. And we learn that Judah is jealous of Joseph because Joseph is preferred by their father. We find Judah participating in the scheme that led to the attempted murder of Joseph as they sought to leave him in a pit to die. It was also Judah who in his greed said, hmm, let's make a profit off of Joseph and was the one that led the brothers in selling Joseph into slavery. Judah then participated in the deception of their father Jacob, participated in claiming that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, refusing to tell his father the truth, which means already day after day after day, Judah is living with a lie that he has told his father and he's keeping the charade up. So even before we get to Genesis 38, we see that Judah is a vile man. Then we read the first verses of Genesis 38, and the picture only gets darker. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So, So Judah leaves his father and his brothers, and he goes to this Canaanite city, three miles southwest of Bethlehem, And thus he enters the employment of this Canaanite man, or at the very least seems to to be working alongside this Canaanite man. And we're told in verse 1 that he turned aside to do this. Do you see that in your Bibles, that language of turning aside? Those words are used over and over again in the Bible to describe someone who is going astray. Someone who is going in the direction he ought not to be going. Judah is leaving his home, leaving his father, leaving his brothers. He's striking out on his own. And where is he going to strike out on his own? In relationships with the pagan Canaanites. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Er. She conceived and bore a son again, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So here we have another evidence 
of Judah's continuing rebellion against God. Judah was a man of lust, and his lust led him to take as his wife a woman he was not to take. Uh, We read here about this Canaanite woman. We don't know her name. We're only told she was the daughter of a man named Shua. We've already seen that Judah belongs to a family who knows the true God, and that Judah ought not to take for himself a wife who is from among the pagan Canaanites because she would be uh, prone to steal his heart away from the God of his father. And yet we are told, and here are the words that are used, he saw Shua's daughter and took her. Those two words, he saw and he took. And those words are used in that combination over and over again in Genesis to speak of someone lusting after something they ought not to have and taking it for themselves. Do you remember the first time we hear those words, Saul and took? It was Eve in the garden, wasn't it? Right. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, Genesis 3, 6. Eve saw something that had been prohibited, something that was off limits to her, but she saw it. She looked upon it, and as she gazed upon that fruit, this desire swelled up in her heart, and she took what she ought not to have taken. Uh, We see this language used to describe the most tragic moment in the human race the moment in which all of humanity fell into lostness. That's not the only place we see it. If we keep going through Genesis, we get to Genesis 6, and God gives us this description of the world before He sends a flood to destroy the people upon it. Before the great flood of Noah, here is God's description of the world. It says, "When When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. They saw and they took. The sons of God are those who had been taught the truth about the true God. And they were seeing this, these women that were, that were pagans, these women who did not know the true God, these women who cared nothing for the true God. These were the kinds of women they were not to marry, and yet... The sons of God saw that they were attractive and took them as their wives. This is how it was with Judah. He saw this woman who was not to be his, and he took her anyway and married her, made her his own. I want to stop and I want to dwell on this for a moment. I want to ask you a question. When you take time to think about your own life, would you not say that many of the sins that you have fallen into began in the exact same way as this. You saw and you took. Listen to these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Have you ever read those verses before and wondered, what, 
What is Jesus saying there? Well, it seems to me that Jesus is teaching that it is through our eyes that light or darkness come into our lives. If our eyes are looking upon things which are good, which are holy, which are pure, then our lives will be characterized by such things as well. But if we set our eyes upon earthly things rather than heavenly things, if we set our eyes gazing upon the stuff of this world or things that are off limits to us, then we will find our lives filled with darkness. What you spend your time looking at is what your heart will grow to desire. And therefore, we ought not to spend our time looking upon things we ought not to have. How many of us have made a foolish purchase using our money unwisely because we were walking through the store and we saw something? And we didn't just see it and pass by, we saw it and we set our attention upon it. And desires began to well up in our hearts. And suddenly we had to have it. There's, there's a reason these luxurious resorts will pay you. Well, not pay you. They'll, they'll pay for you to stay at a nearby hotel, right? If only you will come and take a, a tour of their facilities. Why? Because there's power in sight. There's power in seeing. It's easy for you to refuse their offer of a vacation package over the telephone because you aren't looking at the beaches, right? You're, you're not looking at the sparkling blue water. You're not looking at the Olympic-sized swimming pool or row after row of mouth-watering food on their buffet or their world-class golf course. But if they can get you there, if they can show you these things, it is much more likely that you will have a strong desire to join into their deal than you would have over the telephone. This is how it is with all of life. Right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful what you spend time looking at. How many times do the Scriptures tell us that we should beware those desires that come into our hearts through our eyes. 1 John 3.16 For all that is in the world, the desire... I believe that's actually 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. In other words, we are not to let the desires of our eyes govern our lives. Rather, the desires that are to drive us are the desires for things that are unseen, not things that are seen. Mount Hermon, take to heart 2 Corinthians 4.18 because your life will be spared from many, many sins if you hold on to 2 Corinthians 4.18. Look, to the things, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, the stuff that you can see with your eyes ought not to have a central place in the desires of your heart. For everything that you can see with your eyes is passing away. It is those things that are unseen that are eternal. It is our Lord Jesus. It is the glory of God and the realities of heaven and hell and eternity. These things are to drive our lives. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. 
In other words, as Christians, we are to have our eyes set on something. But it's not these eyes. It's not the eyes in our heads. It's the eyes in our hearts that are to be set on something that drives our actions and drives our lifestyles. Namely, our eyes are to be set on the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. How do you run this race? Looking to Jesus. What's driving your life? Looking to Jesus. Not living your life just looking over here, saying, oh, I want that, looking over here, oh, I want that, oh, right, whatever pleases you in the moment. Living your life in an intentional way with your eyes set on Christ to follow Him. We have physical eyes, we have spiritual eyes. The chief desires of your life should be those that come through your spiritual eyes. Here in Genesis 38, Judah took a wife for himself that he ought not to have had. His sin was motivated by lust, and that lust began with his eyes. He saw the daughter of Shua, implying that he took special notice of her. He set his attention upon her, even though she was supposed to be off limits to him. Friends, one essential aspect of guarding your heart against sin and keeping your heart pure is guarding your eyes. Job said in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a virgin? All Christians should follow Job's example. We should make a covenant with our eyes that we will not look upon other people, we will not look upon material things in a lustful or covetous way. Even if it means drastic action. Because you remember what Jesus said about this, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In other words, it would be better for you to come to church next week with bloody eye sockets and no eyes than for you to come to church next week with fully functioning physical eyes that are diseasing you, that are killing you spiritually because they're bringing covetousness, lust, greed into your Life. You may need to stop watching certain kinds of movies. You need to stop looking at certain kinds of websites. You may have to stop going to certain restaurants where they put the whole buffet before you and you don't have the self-control to say, no heart, I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ. He would not have me go and take that fourth trip to the buffet. Right? Guard your hearts by guarding your eyes. What has the attention of your eyes? That will have the attention of your hearts. Can't help but think of football on Sundays, right? Or just the TV in general. And if what we love in our hearts ultimately has to do with what we put in there through our eyes, what junk over time do we put in? Sometimes it's harmless stuff but we spend so many hours putting, our, putting into our minds things that are trivial, things that don't really matter, that we end up being more concerned in life with things that are trivial and things that don't matter than with things that do. 
All right, let's move on. The wickedness of Judah as seen in his sons. We spent, we spent the longest time on the first point, so don't be afraid. We're done with most of it. The wickedness of Judah now as seen in his sons. Even before Tamar comes into the picture, Judah is a man in, bandit, in bondage to all sorts of sins. And so we've seen that Judah is in bondage to anger, to hatred, to jealousy, to greed, to lust. Now we see that same kind of wickedness reflected in his offspring, in his sons. We first meet Ur, look at verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7, his name is E-R in English. I don't, I don't know, Er, Ur, Er, I, I don't know, but Er is what we're going to go with. Verses 6 and 7. Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So there's two things we learned there. First, Judah not only chose a Canaanite woman for himself, but he chose a Canaanite woman to be the wife of his firstborn, which shows again Judah's wickedness, his lack of discernment, his lack of wisdom concerning even his care for his sons. And then second, Er was so wicked in the sight of God that God put him to death. Now, we're not told much about Er. We're never told what kind of sin he was involved in or why God chose to take his life while other wicked men were spared. But what we know is that Er was so wicked that God refused to let him to continue to live upon the earth. And so he died. So the second son we meet is Onan. And it's important here that we understand this law that's at play. It's called the Leveret Law. It was widely held in the ancient world. Uh, In fact, when God gave His law to Moses at Mount Sinai, this was a part of God's law at Mount Sinai. The Leveret law said that when a woman's husband died, if she had no offspring, then that man's brother was to take her as his wife to care for her and to seek to bear children through her in the name of his brother. And that way, the man who had died, his brother who had died, would continue to have a family line. And so that's the context of verses 8 through 10, is this leveret law about continuing the family line of the one who had died. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Go unto your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Why did Onan not fulfill this duty? Well, likely the same greed that prompted Judah to sell his brother is now at work in Judah's son, Onan. Onan realizes that with his older brother now dead, there's only one younger brother left. And if there is no heir for his older brother, Onan's line now becomes the line of the firstborn. Which means as long as there is no child in the name of his brother, Onan and Onan's line gets the chief inheritance. There is more stuff, more land, more fight, more uh, possessions, more prestige that comes to Onan as long as there is no child born in his brother's name. And so 
He refuses to fulfill his duty out of greed. What makes Onan's sin even worse is that even though he has no intention of fulfilling his duty and providing an heir for his older brother, he continues to go into his older brother's wife. He uses his brother's wife for sensual pleasure while refusing to give her children and continuing to dishonor her late husband. And so it really is no wonder that we read that the Lord became angry with Onan and took his life as well. And so Judah had three sons, and two of them are so wicked that the Lord kills them. We don't know how, but the Lord takes their lives and removes them from the earth. So now what happens to Tamar? Well, according to the custom, she would now be given to the younger brother, Shelah, who would take her as his wife, raise children with her, and she would be cared for and looked upon as a respectable wife and mother in society. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So this is our last heading. The wickedness of Judah concerning Tamar. Marriage, when it's understood rightly, means that a woman no longer belongs to the family in which she was raised but to the family into which she is now married. This is why the father gives the bride away to the husband. And this means that Tamar was now Judah's responsibility to care for her, to provide for her, to make sure that she had all that she needed in life. Instead, Judah sends Tamar away. Judah sends Tamar back to her father and mother. It was his obligation to care for her until his youngest son would be ready to care for her himself. But instead, he leaves Tamar a defenseless widow. Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, says, Judah violates his daughter-in-law by shirking his responsibilities, denying her right to well-being and status in the community, and shifting her problems onto others. Judah refuses to step up to the plate and to care for his daughter-in-law. What's worse, Judah continues to be a man of deception. He deceived his own father concerning Joseph. Now he deceives his daughter-in-law. He tells her that he will eventually bring her back. As soon as Sheila is old enough and ready to take her as his wife, he will bring her back. But we know from his thoughts, Judah had no intention of doing that. He lies to this widow. He gives her reason for hope when he has no intention of actually fulfilling his promise. In fact, we see how paganism has already begun to affect Judah. He's become superstitious. He begins to think that maybe Tamar is the reason his two older sons have died. Maybe she's bad luck, has bad vibes, and causes the men she's with to die. And so he has no intention of giving her to Shelah. The truth is, these men wronged her, but Judah is blaming her for their deaths. And so we see Judah is, he's a fool. He's a wicked fool. And now for many years, for many years, between verses 11 and 12, Tamar will continue as a widow. She will have no husband to care for her, no children to care for in that society, wrongly, but this is how they looked upon it, she will be looked upon as a cursed woman 
She will be looked upon as lower in status. And meanwhile, Judah, who has refused his obligations to care for this woman, will continue to live his own life with little regard for the plight that he has put her in. So, we'll see more of Judah's wickedness tonight. We will see what God does to this Canaanite woman to bring real humbling to Judah's soul. But here is the takeaway. Judah's life is a testimony of how God can save the most wicked of men. Line them up. See how many of the saints of God in the Bible were once incredible sinners. Abraham, once a worshiper of the moon god. right? Moses, a murderer. Paul, a persecutor of Christians, arresting them, throwing them into prison, looking on as the first Christian martyr was stoned to death. Think about the godly men and women of the past. Think about, we just sang Amazing Grace, right? Written by John Newton. Remember, he was a cruel, potty-mouthed slave trader before God came and got a hold of his life. John Bunyan called himself the ringleader of those around him in all manner of vice and unrighteousness. He had a reputation for his cursing, for his lying, for his blaspheming the name of God. And yet what a godly man he became. And how many of us in this room would give testimony to our own wretchedness, our own past full of sin, and how God has saved us? Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, God's grace is vast. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover the sins of even the worst of us. And God's power to transform lives is limitless. Maybe you're here this morning and you refuse to believe that God could love someone like you. You refuse to believe that God might forgive you. You refuse to believe that God would have you as His child. Dear friend, hear the Gospel. That Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have made it so that even Judah can be saved. Even you can be saved. Just throw yourself upon God's awesome mercy. Be humbled. Confess your need of salvation. Confess that you can't make yourself right with God. Submit to Christ and He will save you. He will give you rest for your soul. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been tempted to stop praying for that lost friend. You've been tempted to stop praying for that lost family member. He or she seems so far gone. He or she shows no evidences whatsoever of turning to Christ. From our perspective, it looks like there's no hope. Genesis 38 and the story of Judah exists to tell us there is still hope. Do not give up praying. Do not give up witnessing. Do not give up looking for opportunities to point your friend, to point your loved one to the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that person has breathed his or her last, there is still time and there is still hope. Nothing is impossible with God. Amen? No one is beyond God's ability to save. So, 
Let us resolve anew this morning that we will not have small thoughts concerning the grace of God. Rather, with boldness, let us trust Christ every day and believe His promise that one day He will make us perfect in His sight and that there are others around us who, though they may look neck deep in wickedness, God is able to save. And so we will pray all the more and we will witness all the more and we will call on Him to save them. Because there are many, like Judah, who will one day prove to be remarkable trophies of the grace of God. Let's pray.